0: So beginning in verse 1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God. And then picking up in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, And delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service. Bringing with them John whose other name was Mark.
1: Thank you, Craig. As we get into Acts 13 shortly, we'll see again the Antioch Church, the first greenhouse church, sending and blessing their best, Paul and Barnabas. They're willing to pray and send, and that can be difficult when we want to keep our best and our, the ones we love, we want to keep close. And so we have a chance to do that with the Tracy family, with the Smith family, and continuing that legacy. One day, we get to be together for eternity. doesn't make necessarily the day we say goodbye easier, but it is part of the heart of God to send and to bless. Well, at home, we have a six-and-a-half-year-old and an almost five-year-old, so we couldn't possibly begin to count the number of times we hear the dreaded three-word phrase every week, that's not Fair at different levels of volume and whininess. I don't know, you young families, if you can relate to that. I would just uh, encourage you. I picked this up from here's a quick free tip take it or leave it, but I picked this up from Dwight and Mary, England, who many of you know. Uh, I would establish a person of the week. If you want to reduce the that's not fair. Statements by 75%, guaranteed. A person of the week, when it's that person's person of the week. Now, if you have a large family, it's going to be few and far between, so make it special. When you have two, we toggle back and forth and sometimes forget, but they don't forget. And when you are the person of the week, you get to choose first. On things like which game we're going to play next, which TV show we're going to watch next, who gets to brush their teeth first who chooses where we go out to dinner, uh, what car seat they might sit in, what book we read. Instead of the that's not fair, I say, who's the person of the week? And one of them says, I am, and we make the choice, and it is beautiful, a beautiful thing. Thank you, Dwight. Uh, turn to your neighbor and finish. Oh, no. Okay, so when we, instead of always responding or needing to respond with another three-word f- phrase that to that's not fair, when you say, life's not fair, you use that one. How many of you use this phrase? And end this, because there's a little test here, to your neighbor. You get what you get, and if you turn turn to your neighbor and tell them, what, finish it, you get what you get, and maybe you don't know that phrase, finish however you want, it's supposed to rhyme. How many of you said you don't throw a fit? Okay. Interesting. How many of you said you don't get upset? I heard that was like an East Coast thing, so yeah. And maybe you filled, it, filled in a non rhyming phrase, but that's okay. We need to teach our children and be reminded ourselves life's not fair, but God is just. Do we believe that? When it's far more serious than who got the bigger cookie or the bigger scoop of ice cream... Or chose the next TV show. And in this chapter, we I left off a little bit because I wanted to focus in on this reality for the early church. Certainly they would have wrestled with faith in the justice of God. Because James, at the beginning of the chapter, is arrested and killed by Herod. The majority of the chapter focuses on Peter's arrest, miraculous delivery, his rescue, and then Herod's death. God brings justice. But do you see the two accounts? One man is arrested and killed, one is arrested and delivered. The church's response would have been the same. James was one of, not just a disciple, he was an apostle. He was the brother of John. He was one of the inner three, if you read through the gospel accounts. Peter, James, and John always get called out, James, it's that James. The church would have pleaded to God for His rescue, for His deliverance, likely all night if they had it. That's what we see them doing for Peter. Even though you would say their prayers didn't work. And for Peter, they're again seen gathered, crying out, praying, and pleading for for Peter's deliverance. Even to the point of a lack of faith that God would do it, because when Peter was delivered, the very answer to their prayer, and as they're knocking at the door, they say, oh, no, no, it couldn't be. It must be his angel. I don't think they even believed in, in that idea. But they were coming up with something other than the fact that Peter had been delivered miraculously and was now standing at the door. But even they, too, are growing in their faith. But no doubt were the responses to James's arrest and to Peter's the same by the church. Why did God respond to their prayers differently? That seems not fair. Does it make us question the justice of God? We certainly can't question his sovereignty or his power. Because right in this chapter, at the very end, we see him strike Herod down. He is not aloof or disinterested. He's not sleeping on the job. He's not impotent. And so what do we do when it seems like, for James, evil one? And yet for Peter, good wins. Does Isaiah help us? Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, that helps us. It reminds us that God is in control and God is big. That there is a God and we are not it. It should lead us to Worship. God, thank you that I can never fully understand your will, your ways, and your purposes. And yet is it not personal if this is all that we have? God then becomes distant and perhaps only powerful and unknowable. Now that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of Scripture. God reveals Himself as Father. As good. And as a father would say to his child, and maybe you fathers have said this many times to your children, you just need to trust me. When there's not time to explain or when they can't grasp it yet, but you know what is good for them or what is right for them. And we are not infallible. We will make mistakes as earthly fathers. And we have an eternal heavenly father who will never make a mistake. Who does say to us as children at times, trust me. You cannot understand, not yet, or maybe not ever in this life. You cannot see. It's for me to carry. Thankfully, God is Father. At times, it's merely that we have forgotten His words and His promises. Our gaze drifts from Him to our problems, to trials, to evil. And we get caught, stuck, distracted by it. Other times we simply cannot understand because it's not yet our time to understand. The storyline hasn't been continued far enough, and that's what God uses to grow us in trust and humility and patience. We are not always given the reason, but we have been given His Son. We need our eyes and our gaze to be back on Him when we see things that look unjust, when it seems like God isn't acting or aware when it seems like evil is winning. Well, in this case with James and Peter, we do actually know more of the story and the early church should have known it as well. And though they would have been grieving for James, they shouldn't have been all that surprised. This is in fulfillment. The death of James is in fulfillment to God's word, both generally and specifically. Generally, we have the same promises when we see injustice when we see evil seem to triumph when it seems that God is not engaged or active. We have the same promises generally. The Apostle Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Psalm 116, 15 said, "Precious says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. There's an eternal perspective that we often lose sight of. We are not promised life and abundance here on earth but eternally. Jesus promised, we read this verse from John 16 last week, in this world you will have tribulation. That's His promise, generally, to disciples of Him. Psalm 34, 19, again, back to the Old Testament, says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. God's Word promises tribulation, affliction, pain, and suffering. Jesus said elsewhere, if they persecuted Me, they will persecute you also. So, in a general sense, the church should not have been surprised that this happened to James in a specific sense, we actually have jesus' word to James that this would happen. Now, they didn't know that it would happen in this way by the hands of Herod, but if they understood Jesus right, they would then James would have understood what was coming for him in Matthew chapter twenty. you may remember. James and John were arguing about who would be the greatest and about their position in heaven. And Jesus goes back and forth with them on that. and I can't preach that sermon today. But Jesus asked them, you do not, or told them, you do not know what you are asking. And then he asked, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? I don't know if they quite grasped at that point what he was saying, but their answer was, we can. And so Jesus said, then you will drink my cup. Later we find that the cup refers to the wrath of God that would be poured out. Ultimately, only Jesus took that wrath, so he's he's comparing it to his murder at the hands of evil men, an unjust murder. And so when he says to James and John, you will drink of this, there's a foretelling that would come for James, that he would give his life in that way. God's Word always proves true, generally and specifically. And God's Word reveals Himself as just. And He promises that He will always judge evil. Even when from our perspective, it doesn't look like it. Moses sang of God's justice. All the way back in Exodus 32, verse 4. The rock, His work is perfect For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. And then verse 35 and 36. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. For the Lord will vindicate His people. That's the Word of God. That's His promise. The Word of God proves true. But what about when it doesn't look like it or feel like it from our perspective? When the early church would have had to have said, God, if you were going to judge Herod like that, you knew his heart and his evil. Why did you wait? Why didn't you answer our first prayer? Why didn't you rescue our beloved James and bring justice then? Well, does the general Word of God help with the Lord? A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness. By the way, you and I are in that word, some. All of us, everyone. Our perspective is God is withholding justice. Not always immediately bringing evil into its proper place. And for us, it appears that evil prospers and goes unpunished. Yet Psalm 34 says, The face of the Lord is against Those who do evil and will cut off their memory from the face of the earth. The word of the Lord proves true. We may not always have the rest of the story like the early church did. When we experience evil come against us or see it in our world, we must have faith in His character and His word, who God is and what He has promised In Acts 12, we see God's justice on display for Peter, the innocent being delivered. We see God's justice on display for Herod, an evil man struck down by the hand of God. It's interesting, the Jewish historian Josephus records this account and gives a little bit more detail than Luke gives, that Herod was struck with A sudden painful internal illness that led to his death. And what Josephus describes as the event that that took place on was that Herod at a celebration came out in a a robe made of silver and it was twilight and so when the sun hit him he gleamed brightly and he did it all for the attention and approval of man. We find out early in this chapter that he arrests James and puts him to death and he found out it pleased the people and he became hungry for more. And then as he spoke, and he likely was a good orator, he spoke and people cried out, not the words of a man, but the words of a God. And Herod received it. Herod relished in it. And for that, Luke says, because he took the glory that was to do God only, and he took it within himself. God judged him and struck him down. Up to this point, God's wrath has been held back. And yet, it's sobering, isn't it, to consider this that God allows Herod the evil of false imprisonment and murder, and likely much more in his rule. And yet, what he judges him for is his arrogance, his pride. His setting himself up like a God and receiving glory in himself. This reminds us of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts five, who were struck down not for their deceit, but for their desire to make a name for themselves, to be known and seen favor seen as favored, just like Barnabas had. That's what they were after, the approval and the acclaim of men, their pride was hungry, and that's what God judged. And yet, even though we're reminded of Acts 5 and we see what he does in Acts 12, these accounts do remind us God is just, holy, and powerful. He is not passive or disinterested. We also know from biblical history, from world history, and from our own experiences that God is not bound by a law, but he acts according to his character and will. So once again, we see in Acts a description, not a prescription. One innocent man is delivered. The other he allows to die. One tyrant, evil ruler, he strikes down. Another he allows to continue to murder, oppress, and terrorize. And we again go back to the general promises of God. My ways are not your ways. And the promises of His perfect justice and that He is eternally perfect, and His purposes will be fulfilled. Now, if we were sitting on the throne, things would be a bit different, right? There's some evil out there that we would take care of, that we would judge. But if we were sitting on the throne, we would also show mercy to our loved ones, wouldn't we? Our friends. If we were sitting on the throne, we wouldn't send our one and only Son the cross we wouldn't choose that to be the moment of the most radical justice in the history of the world that God would pour out his wrath against all sin and evil upon Jesus Jesus didn't just drink the cup of God's wrath he became the vessel and so this is where the word of God gets specific We have the general promises that we must remember, that we must act in faith, but we have this specific revelation in Jesus that when we look into our world and we see evil and we say, God, how come you have not judged it? The answer is, I already have. It has been done. If we are living and breathing today, we have been extended mercy we have not received the justice of God. God is not slow in keeping His promises. He has fulfilled. Now what do we do with the, but why not remove this evil leader? This is still post-crucifixion and resurrection. And God, if You did it once, You could do it again. I have no one specific in mind. But this statement could be said at any point in human history. God, why not remove that evil tyrant, that leader, that oppressor, that murderer? And it would be true anywhere in the world multiple times over. How do we respond to evil in more specific ways? First, we respond to Jesus, to the justice of God that was poured out in Him that we become recipients of because He died in our place. We become aware of the evil that is within us We cannot justify evil. We do not measure against others. We don't look to Herod and say, look how evil he was. I'm not evil. He was struck down for his pride. No, we haven't killed and used power to murder. But we have sought the approval and acclaim of others. We have pursued it. We have cherished it. We have harbored pride. Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin and evil is death. Also the promise of God. But just like in the garden, that promise of you will know death if you eat this fruit is not an immediate death as we saw in Adam and Eve, but a gradual death, a decaying, a destruction. Sin and evil enters in. And we are under the mercy of God. But justice has been poured out in Jesus and apart from Jesus will be poured out on every one, one day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And if we stand before Jesus, none of us measure up to Him. All fall short. And we will either receive the full justice of God for our own sin, our own evil, Or we will stand and say, I receive the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ because I've believed in Him alone who took your justice in my place. And we will be pardoned. A brief review from last week. In response to evil, we must be people of faith, of prayer and proclamation. People of faith who remember the mercy of God. Who remember that it has been shown us and therefore we remain humble when we face the evils of our world. We, we, we are people of faith who believe in the sovereignty and the justice of God. That's His promise and that He is always at work according to His will and His purpose. He is not aloof or disinterested or distracted. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. A little bit of an extended quote, but worth it. Before there is a blessing anywhere, he says, there will first be suffering somewhere. Scripture does not explain this but simply sets it before us as fact. Jesus requires all who are his to live by the same law of harvest that he lived by himself, becoming the seed that dies to bring forth fruit. Every experience of pain, grief, frustration, disappointment, and being hurt by others is a little death. When we serve the Savior in our worldly world, there are many such deaths to be died. But the call to us is to endure since God sanctifies our endurance for fruitfulness in the lives of others. In response to evil, we must be people of faith who remember and believe. Second last week, I said in response to evil, we must be people of prayer. Not as a last resort or a Hail Mary when nothing else seems to work, but as our primary weapon against evil. Prayer is not passive. And I said I would leave this off. I'm tempted to cut it again, but I think it's worth it. Ephesians 6 reminds us of who our battle is against, of where the source of evil is. And it reminds us that we are not left alone or naked or without a weapon. We are told we have for defense the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation five pieces of armor for defense let's not leave home without it but we also have two weapons and they are powerful and they are all we need Ephesians 6:15 and following in all circumstances take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication for some reason Prayer doesn't get listed in the armor of God. And that's a grave mistake. We have the sword of the Spirit and we have the weapon of prayer which I would say cannot even be defined. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Exactly what the early church was doing when they felt and saw the evil of Herod come against them and come against their brother Peter. They were taking up the sword of the Spirit, which was God's word and proclaiming his promises and they were taking up the weapon of prayer against Herod. That was active. They didn't run to hide and likely by tradition, they were actually gathered in the very same room that the Last Supper took place. A known place within the city. They are coming together for warfare ultimately. To fight through their prayers. Prayer is our most powerful and effective weapon—not something to try when we feel helpless or at a loss. James said, "This is a different James." The prayers of a righteous—the righteous—are powerful and effective. And where does our righteousness come from? Jesus. If you are in Christ, and your prayers are powerful and effective. That's the promise. And I would ask us when we sense. Evil in our world, and we wonder how to respond and what to do about it. That prayer is not a last resort, and it's not the only thing we are called to, but it is the primary thing. And is that the way we are living and fighting on behalf of the oppressed and the hurting and the broken and the needy? Is that where we go to? Is that our place? I'd say, which is greater, the words we speak in prayer against evil, or the number of our social media posts condemning it. Which is greater, the time spent in prayer against evil or the time spent ingesting CNN and Fox News? If it's a primary weapon, we must be committed to it. And number three, in response to evil, we must be people who proclaim the gospel just as Peter did Peter proclaimed it when he recognized God's deliverance and rescue. When he came to himself, he proclaimed it even though no one was listening. And I said we might need to evangelize, be gospel evangelists like Costco snack peddlers. Just speaking of the goodness, whether people are listening or not listening or buying or not. It's just a mantra that goes on and on because we needed ourselves too to be reminded of the promises of God, to be gospel proclaimers. But who in your life needs to hear about hope? Freedom, healing, forgiveness, peace, deliverance, the gospel, everyone. But let me say, this is where I left off. Being people of faith and prayer and proclamation with humility isn't all that we're called to in response to evil. Now we never move on from those. But while we are being them and doing them, we are also called to do justice. God's Word commands us. Amos 5.14 Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Another prophet, Micah verse 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And there's other places we could go. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice. Seek good, not evil. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice. I'd say work for it. Toil and fight for justice. But this is critical while we do so seeking good, loving kindness, walking in humility with with our God. So when we see injustice, whether it's right around us, down the street, in our community, or whether it's more global in nature, how are we responding? It's okay and even right to respond with anger. Give you freedom there. I think we've done a poor job saying, remove all anger. The word says, in your anger, do not sin. Now, I haven't done a good job figuring out how to do that. So, and I think a lot of us are in that place where so we say, I just got to get rid of all anger. But when we see injustice, when we see oppression, when we see evil, we are commanded to respond with justice. And how could we not respond with an anger? A friend of mine calls it a holy discontent. It might be too too mild. It's what we do with that anger that matters. God's wrath comes against evil. He has a slow burn. Again and again, you'll hear the phrase if you read through the Old Testament, the Lord's anger was kindled. Think of like starting a fire. Most of us just have a flashpoint, don't we? We need to learn more the heart of God to respond with the anger of God, not a very common sermon, I think, but maybe one that needs to be preached. What do we do with that anger if psalm thirty four sixteen reminds us that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut them off the memory, the memory of them from the earth, what do we do with anger? Do we condemn and confront i 'm concerned that in our present Culture, Especially with social media, it's very easy to be quick to condemn and then do nothing else. We can and rightly should condemn evil. But remember that condemnation leaves very little room for bridge building, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for healing. We also need to know that in Christ there is no condemnation. Instead, we've been called to ministries of mercy. And that's how we confront. We condemn the evil. We are against it as the Lord is. But we are not called to condemn one another. We confront. Here's what Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen: Through mercy. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. He quotes back to Moses, Moses' song that we read. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This reminds us of Peter when he wrote in his letter about Jesus who entrusted himself to him who judges justly in the face of persecution and injustice. He trusted God and he said that's our example of how we are to walk. But Paul goes on in verse 20 and says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. When we see evil, evil men, evil women, evil systems, our first response, our flashpoint might be, Yeah, I want to harm. I want to hurt. I want to retaliate. I don't know if we first think about keeping burning coals on people. That seems kind of extreme. We have other measures. We want our tongue to be the sword. We want to see justice come. Paul shows us an opposite way of the Gospel. Use that energy, that passion, that fire against evil, channel it through good, through mercy, through service. And he says he'll take care of the rest. He's going to use that in a way to bring about his justice. Do not overcome by evil, verse 21, but overcome evil with good. We don't retaliate against evil with evil ourselves. We can't justify it. We're called to overcome it with good. To be more and more like Jesus. Let us confront evil, but overcome it with good, not condemnation. God's vengeance and justice and timing will be perfect even if it is not our own. And so I asked, do you ever see, why do I even ask this question? Why did I write this in my notes? Do you ever see evil or injustice in the world and feel helpless to do anything about it? That's a pretty dumb question. Let's restate that. When you see evil and injustice in the world or in your smaller communities and you feel helpless to do anything about it, what do you do? Nothing? Do you go to social media and add your voice to the static? When you know it's probably not that effectual, but what else can you do? Maybe if you add to it, it will get someone's attention. Are we people of faith, prayer, and proclamation first? When we look into our world and we see more and more violence, more and more murder, more oppression, more slavery, more injustice, I was knowing I was going to preach in some ways on this theme today and I said oh, it'll, it, maybe it'll be a maybe therefore it'll be a calm week in our world. Anything but. And we can sign petitions, write letters, march and rallies, change the way we vote and perhaps we should. Perhaps we should regardless of what side of the aisle you are on. It isn't meant to be a political message. I hope it's timeless because it's the Word of God. And God's people around the world, Peter reminds us, are going through the same suffering. He said it in his day, 2,000 years ago. It continues to be true. But here's a warning. If we, if we only do those things, we will never legislate evil. And we can never legislate morality. Jesus didn't. You want to change the world. You want to fight for justice? Good. Jesus taught us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Knowing that one day this earth needs to be remade. But that's our call. We're called to pray that and long for it. God, Your will be done here as it is in heaven. That means justice. That means freedom. That means relieving suffering. That means building unity. That means seeing poor and needy and marginalized. It means all of it. Your will be done here. But we feel ineffectual sometimes, don't we? And so we maybe do nothing. Maybe we pray. I encourage you, church, begin in the places where you can make change and have impact. First, within your own life, in your own families, in your neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, local church, you can make a difference and an impact there. You and I and a small local church cannot change the world. That's not God's plan. God has put His church into all of the world. And if we would trust Him and follow His lead, pray with faith, humility, and work alongside the efforts He is already about, with eyes open and hearts open, then the church can change the world. What we do, do we want to change the world today? Can't be done. But what we do today could change it one day. That's our longing. It's our prayer. In all the complexity of life, in the ever-present, seemingly growing presence of evil in our world, Jesus taught us to pray simple and powerful prayers the most famous prayer ever prayed was right along these themes. And you know it from Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. And may that be our response. I'll invite the team to come and join us. Someone we may have to find Catherine in the Sunday school room because she is teaching kids today and leading us in music. And by the way, if you would like to serve, there's room for you. Make a difference. Let me give. Let me come back to this note that I passed. But I don't see Catherine in the room yet. Change the world through these smaller fields. Love and cherish, and serve your spouse. Nurture and shepherd and discipline your children. Love and pursue families in crisis, single parents, orphans. Give generously to the poor and needy. See them. Open your home and your table. We've talked about this much recently. Open your home and your table to neighbors. Yes, even those that hold the very worldviews, political persuasions, and lifestyles that are opposite of yours. These are the places that the church has impact. And Jesus has His church everywhere. Let's be people of faith, His Word, His prayer, of people of prayer and of justice. Let me pray this prayer. It will probably sound familiar. I wrote it out. You can join me as you feel led. And then we will respond. The communion table is open if you're a guest with us. Every week we get to celebrate in communion being reminded again of what Christ has done for us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the elements are there for you to remind you of His body and His blood. His life given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And He invites all to the table. And so even if today you're not a follower of His, or you couldn't describe yourself that way, but there's a stirring and longing in your heart to worship the King of kings, then come to the table. You need no nothing else but the desire to love Him and follow Him and grow in Him. The table is open. We will have a chance to give generously as a response to what God has given to us. And we use these funds to distribute both here, regionally, and to the ends of the earth. More than 20% going out of these walls to hopefully alleviate suffering and offer freedom and bring the hope of the Gospel into unreached places. The heartbeat of the Alliance and we're right in tune with that. So I invite you to give generously. Many ways to give many places to do so, but I invite you to do that here as God leads. And let's sing, let's praise as Catherine has led us, whether that's a spoken word, whether it's out of your heart with no words coming out, whether it's through a picture you draw. Let's be responsive to what God has for us today. Let's be present in the moment. And then as we walk out these doors, Lord, make specific for us what you're asking us to do, even if it's hard, even if it stretches us. Let me pray this prayer. Join me. Our Father in heaven, holy, just is your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what we need today. Forgive us, Lord, and teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Deliver us from the evil within us and the evil one who comes against us Lord, rescue the oppressed and the enslaved. Convict us not to only condemn evil, but to confront it with good. Show us where and how. And Holy Spirit, we need you now. Amen.